Well, last week, Wendy did an awesome job. Did you hear Wendy speak? Give her a big round of applause. That's Roger, ha Wendy is, well, let's put it this way. Roger Housen is Wendy's husband. What an awesome team, great. In fact, I was so impressed myself when I, I, I listened to the talk. I've asked Wendy whether she might you know, consider preaching again at the end of the month and, uh, or beginning of the new September or something, and she's kindly agreed to do that, very excited about that. Last week, Wendy spoke about Peter and what insight, what, what depth of, of understanding, what, what, what theological understanding, and what, what a gift of communication. You know, I want to grow up and be a preacher like that. You know, that's, that's wonderful, bless her. So we'll have more of that next week. So this series um, is entitled The Apostles, Ordinary People, Extraordinary God. And uh, those of us who are having a chance and opportunity to preach uh, are picking our favorite, I don't know, I, I, maybe that's the right word, our favorite apostle, and, and just drawing some things out. And today, I want to talk about John, the Apostle John. John the Evangelist, as he's known in some spheres, John the Divine. Uh, but the thing that John really gets uh, noticed for is that throughout the Gospel of John, which he wrote, he refers to himself as the beloved disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now that's a curious thing, isn't it? Uh, why did he do that? Why didn't he just say me? Uh, Luke in his Gospel says, you know, so-and-so and I, we went to such and such a place. He refers to himself. But John avoids that, and whenever he features in the narrative, and of course, as one of the apostles, he, fe he features you know, many times, he refers to him, and there are in fact six occasions when he refers to himself as the, uh, either the disciple whom Jesus loved or, 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 or the beloved disciple, however you care to translate it. Now, what I want to say before some of you get distracted by this, uh, I'm sorry to say, if, 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 if that's your particular leaning, he's, it doesn't mean he was gay. The word for love in the Greek, there's three versions of it. There's eros, which is where we get erotic and stuff like that. There's phileo, uh, filial love. Sometimes people talk about that. And then there's uh, agape, which is a unique word, really, used in Christian circles. In the Greek, when John is talking about love, he's not using the erotic word, so it's not you know, a same-sex attraction there. Uh, but he's using the two words somewhat interchangeably, it has to be said, phileo or agape. So why is he then the disciple whom Jesus loved? Why he, is he referred to himself as the beloved disciple? Why was he regarded in that manner by the other disciples? Surely God loves us all, completely and utterly. Well, that's absolutely true. And I think it was Tim Keller, wasn't it? I don't know, but if it isn't, I'll claim the glory for it. Uh, who said this, let's throw it up on the screen. Why don't you read it with me? Thank you, uh, thank you, Matt. Read this with me. There's nothing that you've done that will make God love you less. There's nothing you can do that will make God love you more. Let's read that again, let it sink in. There's nothing that you've done that will make God love you less. There's nothing you can do that will make God love you more. God loves us all completely and utterly. He's given himself. There's nothing left to give. God's not holding anything back. Jesus, who is God, went to the cross and gave up his life for us. That's how much he loves us. So what is this beloved thing? Well, the first thing I think I can say is that 
Interestingly enough, I think scholars, nobody has the conclusive answer to this. It's a matter of some debate. But what is generally regarded and generally known about John, he was a lot younger than the other disciples, a lot younger. I mean, these guys, these disciples, these people we look up to, as, as, as Wendy mentioned last week, they weren't the sort of sage apostles that you see in stained glass windows. These were young men. I mean, they were in their 20s or so. I mean, Jesus himself was only 30, beginning his ministry. So these were young guys. But it is generally accepted that John was, was much younger. He was a teenager. He was a whippersnapper. He was probably the one who ended up carrying everybody's bags and struggling along behind everybody. And, and people had an affection for him. They were fond of him. And Jesus was fond of him. And the thing that, about John that made him possibly unique was that he wasn't there for any, he didn't come with any kind of agenda. Now, I don't know whether we'll cover all of the, the apostles in this little preaching series, but we know, for example, that there was Simon the Zealot. That was a political agitation type of thing. He, that, he was see, hoping that Jesus would be this military leader that would take things to the next level and kick out the Romans. You know, there was all, that, that was on everybody's agenda to a greater or lesser degree, but the Zealots were, were a political activist party. We know, of course, that that Thomas, you know, he, he had his doubts. He wasn't quite sure why he was there half the time. We know that Judas was there for what he could take. He was on the take the whole time. He was, had his hand in the, in the, in the sort of communal uh, purse, was taking money out of that. We know that about him. We know about James and John, that they had aspirations to be, you know, the chancellor of the exchequer. You know, people come to Jesus, as you and I do, for all sorts of reasons. You know, maybe he'll help me get that job. Maybe he'll help me get that girl. Maybe he'll help with this inner pain I have. You know, there's nothing wrong with that, really. You may be surprised to hear me say that. But John, as a, as a, as a teenage boy, who'd been given permission, as it were, to follow Jesus, that was not uncommon because young men, teenagers, were often apprenticed out to rabbis. And it seems that John may have been that. We know that John, as I said, was, was still around in AD 95. That's the last you know, record we have him. Whereas the others had all died at the sort of 60 and 70, most of them martyred. John was the only one that wasn't martyred. So, so there is this sense at which you know, John didn't have an agenda. He was just this, this, you know, this gangly kid who was part of the crew but he loved Jesus. He, was, he just loved Jesus. He loved hanging out with Jesus. Now, God loves us all equally. He loves you as much as he loved John. But sometimes, of course, love is reciprocated. And when love is reciprocated, when, you when somebody loves someone and then that love becomes a return, there is a wonderful symbiosis. What am I talking Well, let me give you an example. I woke up one morning, many of you know this story, and I uh, found myself in love with Fliss. I was 16 at the time, and I'd known her for a year or so and just been part of friend. And I literally, I don't know what happened during the night. I woke up and I knew I was, lo I was in love with her. What's more, I knew I was not only in love with her, but I was going to marry her. So I, I, ran, I, I ran to college that day, hastened to tell her the good news. <laughs> <laughs> My first big mistake, of, first of many, and she was appalled by the idea. In fact, if she'd known the process for certifying somebody, she would have probably had me certified. 
But the reality was, I, I, I don't know what happened. I, I, I still can't explain it to this day. I, I, I believe actually God spoke to me at one point, assuring me that you know, I would marry her. I wasn't really following Christ then. But anyway, at some later stage, after a great deal of persuasion and after much reflection, there came a moment in time when Fliss said to me, I love you. I was going to quit that she was drugged at the time, but that, that would be unworthy. Did I love her more after the moment when she said to me that I love you too? No, I, I was head over heels in love with her. But suddenly she loved me. And there's this energy then, there's this symbiosis, you know. That wasn't always true of all the disciples, curiously enough, because they were there for a variety of reasons. Jesus had to ask of Peter later on, do you love me, Peter? Three times he asked him, do you, do you love me? I don't think Jesus was unsure. I think actually something else was going on, and I don't want to unpack that, but, but you know, it, it wasn't evident. But John was different. John just loved Jesus as he was, warts and all. So I just wanted to introduce this topic by talking to, about that. And in John, the apostle, the beloved disciple, I actually think... And this has, been, this has occurred to me as this week, past week's gone by as I've been studying John, that we have something of a model, a model disciple. You could almost say he's a model for a vineyard disciple in a way. And I want to take you through four of the readings where we read about John and just say a few words and see how something builds out of this love, this intimacy. You know, as a denomination, as a movement, we are known in church circles as having a great heart for the poor, a great heart for evangelism, and a great heart for a particular style of worship. It's not to everyone's taste, it has to be said. But the, the, the unique characteristic of our worship is that we aspire to draw close to God. Draw me close to you. It's seeking intimacy, if you like, seeking that love relationship with Jesus. Now, some would say that's prideful. I don't think so. I think it's a priority. So let's look at, at the first of these readings, and hopefully as we go through this, you'll, you will kind of catch my drift. That's my prayer anyway. So the first little heading I have is that John was one of those who was willing to sit where others fear to sit. He sits where others fear to sit. My reading here is John chapter 13, verses 20 to 26. Many of you will find this, will be familiar with this. Let's just read it. Jesus says, very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After Jesus had said this, he was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. That's John, the disciple who Jesus loved. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus. Leaning back against Jesus. He asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. 
Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of, the son of Simon Iscariot. John was in that place, and many sermons have been written about this. I'm going to hopefully take it a bit further. That John was in that place where he was able to lean back into Jesus. One of the things I frequently pray, you've often seen us as a team, you know, before the service, we get together and we just pray for one another. And I often pray for our, our team, particularly our worship leaders and the rest, that say, Lord, just let them lean back into you. Let's lean, you know, that's the invitation to, to lean back into Jesus. To lean back into Jesus. To get up close so you can hear his heartbeat. Wouldn't it be something to know the heartbeat of God? Not just the physical heartbeat. I'm not even sure that exists. We'll do in Jesus. But to know the very innermost thoughts, the very innermost hidden things. Lean back into Jesus and know his heart. And that was John's place. That was where he said, Peter had to lean over to John to ask Jesus to do that. John was in that place of intimacy. And God the Holy Spirit invites us to press on in to find that place now. It's not pride. It's not pride. It's a priority. Some people hold back through false humility. They wouldn't actually, you know, this is going to rock some people's boats here. And it's not a criticism. But some people say, well, I, I couldn't do that. I'm not worthy. I mean, I know God loves me, and you know, I'm going to do my best to be a Christian, but you know, God, you know, I can't do that. I mean, who am I? You know, I, you know, I, I, I'm a sinner. I used to be a druggie. I, used to, you know, I can't do that. Do you know what you're really doing then? You're saying that Jesus' blood shed upon the cross for your sins is not sufficient to cleanse you. It's not sufficient to make you white as snow. It's, that's why I say it may be held for the, for, the, for the best of reasons, but actually it's an affront to God. That, because what you're saying is, no, I'm too much of a sinner. I can't do that. It's all right for the holy people. You know, the Mother Teresa's of this world, they can press in and be that close that they can lean back into Jesus. But actually, what heaven knows and earth so often fails to understand is that the blood of Jesus has washed us white as snow. And now we can press into the presence of God and know him as father and know him as a child. And out of this place, this first place, this place of priority, this place of privilege that is open to all who own Christ as their Lord and Savior, out of this place, the rest of the stuff flows. Now, as I say, we can spend a lot of time on that and many great preachers made much of that. But I want to push this on. If John, the apostle, was able to sit where others fear to sit, he was also able to stand where others fear to stand. You see, he had that assurance, that, that rock-solid assurance that God knew him and loved him, cherished him, and at the foot of the cross was dying for him. Let's read this little account. John chapter 19, verses 25 to 27. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved, there you go, there's John again, standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. 
And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. So the apostle John took Mary, the mother of Jesus, who was then, we don't know what happened to Joseph. It's speculated that you know, he's dead now, so she would be a widow without her eldest son. Difficult place in Jewish culture. But there on the cross, Jesus sorts it. John, there's your mom. Mother, here's your son. But the question I want to ask is this. Where were the other disciples? They'd been with Jesus for three years. They'd seen the miracles. They'd been there when he walked on water. They'd been there when he fed the 5,000. They'd really been up close and personal. They'd seen everything that Jesus had done. Some of them had been on the Mount of Transfiguration and seen the glory of Christ. But now in this moment, their faith, such as it was, was not strong enough to be there with Jesus. You know, Peter had said, I will never, I will die for you. And Jesus said, really? Really, Peter? You reckon? I tell you, you're going to deny me by the end of tonight. They'd all done a run But one, John, the beloved, his ministry and his affection and his following Jesus had never been tainted by what can I get out of this? Can I get my healing? Can I get this? Can I get my needs met? Can I whatever, 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 whatever? Will I get a great place? It was all love. And there is nothing like love to motivate us in life. Money can motivate you for a while. A friend of mine is a very, 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 very successful businessman. We were talking about money a few years ago now. And I don't know how it even came up, but he said this, he said, you know, it doesn't matter how much you pay people, money will never motivate them. It can demotivate them if they're not being paid enough, or you're cheating them but it never motivates them. In the long haul, it has to be some value, it has to be some inner thing that will motivate people. It's important to understand that. And John the disciple was motivated by love because his beloved, the Lord Jesus, was impaled upon a cross. He couldn't run away. Just as if you've nursed a sick child or a sick husband or a sick wife, you know, what do you do? Take a few, you know, she's in hospital, I'll take myself off to Paris for a few days and you know, she'll be out on Thursday, I'll come and pick her up. Of course it doesn't work like that. You pace up and down outside, you, you feel helpless and hopeless and prayerless, and, but you, you stick it out. Why? Because love compels you. It was love that meant that John could stand in that place which was very dangerous. It gave him courage. He could have been arrested. It only meant for somebody in the crowd to say, wait a minute, what? What are you doing here? That's one of the flipping disciples. Grab him. But love compelled him. You know, I, 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 I hesitate to say it, but you know, if we've had any favor over the years, if we've achieved anything as a community, for me, in my little Rationale, it's, because, it's all come out of our love, the intimacy, the connection we've had with God. 
People say, why do you keep doing these things? Why does Vineyard keep stretching? To be honest, love compels us. It's born out of love. The third thing I want to say, another little story here, another little connection. John was able to run when others fear to start. So the time of sitting had passed, the time of standing had passed. Now we were coming into a time of action, again, born out of this love of God, this invitation to intimacy. John was one who was ready to run in those days, those difficult hours following Jesus' death and his internment. People were confused. The disciples were fearful that any minute now there could be that sound of soldiers marching down the alley and the thud, thud, thud on the door. They were, didn't know what was going to happen. They were confused. They were terrified and all the rest of it. Suddenly this extraordinary report comes back to them. Let's read it. John chapter 20, verses 1 to 9. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, there he is, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He ran headlong into, he did not know what. The story goes on. And he bent over and he looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. He was the first man, the women saw it first, the first man to ask the question, where's Jesus? What's happened here? Peter, huffing and puffing behind, burst through, typical Peter. Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb, and he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, that's John, also went in, and he saw and believed. See, he knew Jesus. Simon Peter stood there saying, in so many words, he was a rough, gruff Galilean, what the heck? John went in, first to get to the tomb, and he saw and believed. You see, he was in that place of intimacy. Love of God leads to faith in God, leads to action. You run where others fear to start. It's lovers that accomplish great things in the kingdom. Not the wise, not the critique, not the critic, not the, yeah, it, it's those who love more, who accomplish more. And then finally, one last little point here, and we could spend more time, but the last one is, John was able to see what others failed to see. Why? Because he knew Jesus in a way that the others didn't. He had invested his time when Jesus was alive, pressing into his presence. Let's have a look at John 21, verses 1 to 7. Thank you. Afterward, and this is post-resurrection, Jesus has risen from the dead, and he's beginning to pop up here and there and surprise his disciples. It says this, after Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, it happened this way. 
Thank you, Matt. Simon, Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. Got it? Just a bloke in the gloom. He called out to them, this is Jesus, friends, haven't you caught any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, he saw it first, it is the Lord. The others were saying, who's this bloke on the beach? Just mind his own business or whatever, you know, whatever they were saying. But John saw what the other disciples did not see. It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say that, because he trusted what John said, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off and jumped into the water, swam to the shore. Jeremiah 33, 3, which is a verse that we've often looked at, says this, call out to me and I will show you deep and unsearchable things that you do not know. God reveals himself and the deep, hidden, unsearchable things of his kingdom and his works in the 21st century to those who take the time to lean back into him, who press on in. I mean, I'm of an activist personality. That means that in any given situation, I want to say, tell me what to do. You know, I don't like standing around in awkward silences. Just give me something to do and I'll get on with it, you know. That's a blokish thing, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. But actually, the Lord says, follow me. Well, is there anything I can do for you? No. Hang out with me. But, but I can do, I mean, I'm a very gifted person. I could do this, I could do that. Chris, just come and hang. I've had to learn how to hang out with Jesus, how to be still before him. It's taken me 35 years and I'm not very good at it, but I'm getting better. It takes time to center oneself, to dial down, and to engage with God the Holy Spirit. But in that place of intimacy, if I can call it that, out of that flows courage to stand where others fear to stand. To go when others say, oh, I don't think we should be doing that. No, that'd be crazy. And to see what God is doing with a certainty that sometimes unnerves people. John, as many of you will know, and I'll finish on this point, he went on to write the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And there are many extraordinary prophetic revelations in the scriptures. All of them are wondrous. But I think, in my humble opinion, the book of Revelation tops it all. And that was given. That deep, unsearchable mystery was revealed to John, the beloved, our model disciple. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand and pray. Let's have Mark up. And, uh... You know, Mark, I, I just, I think I'd like to do draw me close to you again. I just... Feel that might be appropriate, is that okay? Cool, let's just pray. 
Heavenly Father, I just want to say thank you to you because the invitation is there for all of us, not just the chosen few, but it's an invitation to know you as you want to be known first and foremost, as a loving Savior, as a Heavenly Father, as one who seeks relationship before he seeks our work. So, Father, we say, thank you, Lord. We seek you. We seek your face before we seek your hand. And everyone said, amen. Amen.